1208. This is Jeff Wagner. So, Eric, you, you know, when, when you do a radio talk show, you, you've kind of got this mental stoplight in your mind. And, and sometimes it's like green lights. Go ahead. Say what you want. And then there's red lights saying, just don't go there. And then there's like the flashing yellow. Okay, I, I, my initial comments here, I've, it's a flashing yellow. Now, let me give you some advice. We talked a little bit about this briefly yesterday. If, if you ever go to get a massage, all right, now, typically... You, you have two choices. It's either 50 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, that's how they typically do it. And I always recommend the hour and 15 minutes because 50 minutes just doesn't quite seem like long enough. So I always recognize, I always recommend, I mean, what the heck? If you're going to go do it, just, just spend the extra dollars and, sure. you know, yeah. get the hour and 15 minutes. And then there's Robert Kraft. More details emerging. Robert Kraft is, of course, the 77 year old. Guy worth six point six B as in billion dollars, who has now been busted and charged with two counts of soliciting prostitutes because you know he, he's going to some like like quickie rub job place you know in in Florida this spa that apparently has all these um, women that have been brought in from China and who are essentially quasi sex slaves that have been going on there so he's now been charged with two counts of soliciting prostitution even though authorities say they think he was a regular at the place but he's apparently on film. <laughs> He's on film um, because what they did is they got a they got a search warrant and apparently they set up cameras and they they filmed all this yeah, stuff. So so okay, Kraft is seventy seven years old. All right, so here's here's the deal. These are the charges. Apparently, now, now keep in mind, I think a decent massage at least fifty minutes. You know, maybe an hour and fifteen minutes. So here's the allegations against him. Saturday night, uh, this would be January nineteenth. Kraft went to went to the massage parlor, got there at 4.45 p.m., left at 5.25 p.m. So that was 40 minutes. You can't get a decent massage in 40 minutes. Paid $200 for two women's services, according to the search warrant. All right. Then, apparently, he liked it so well, he went back the next morning, uh, January 20th. Now, this is the Sunday that his New England Patriots were playing the Kansas City Chiefs in Kansas City. Yep. So he's in South Florida at... He's in South Florida at 11 a.m. Florida time, all right? He goes in 10.59 a.m. He only stayed till 11.13 a.m. So th- this was this was a quick visit, <laughs> such as it was, and he paid $100 for one woman's sexual services. And then apparently, I guess this is what happens when you're a billionaire. Then, so you go to the, the, the quickie joint, and then you get on a plane. Get on your private plane, yeah. fly halfway across the country. I... Oh man, what do you say? You know, it's <laughs> There's just, nothing I can't say. You know, what, what do you, what do you say to this stuff? You you kind of want to like take him aside and just kind of say what what were you thinking, pal? You know, I mean, you, the the guys now, you know, he's he's his wife passed away a number of years ago, mm-hmm. so he's yep. a widower and things like that. And I don't I don't happen to believe this stuff is a victimless crime, but you would think if you're worth six plus billion dollars, you wouldn't have to be going to places like this, you know. To have this done, sure, I'm just saying. Sure. You know, yeah, you got nothing to say. I, you? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I was, I, I, thought, I, had an idea of where <laughs> yeah. you were going. Right, 15 minutes. I mean, the yeah, second was like minutes, 15 yep. minutes. Well, Not even 14 minutes. Well, right, and then it's probably well, I, I got to catch a plane because I got to fly to Kansas City to uh, catch catch my team play. Mm-hmm. So can we hurry this up or whatever? I don't know. I mean. Robert, Kraft, I don't know what the NFL does to him. I don't know what they sh- should do to him. But it's it's sort of a pathetic 
way to, to have as a legacy goes. But what can they do that would actually mean anything? You know, Scafidi suggested, oh, can you keep them away from the team or team activities for a half a year or a year? What would that really matter? It's not well, like I mean, other know, than being able to watch the games. Well, I mean, you, I mean, there is a there is precedent. I mean, for example, you have um, NFL. For example, remember Mark Schott, who won the Cincinnati Reds. Yep, yep. You know, they they suspended her um, because of racist things that you know she was mm. saying. So she wasn't allowed to have interactions with the team. I. I I, I, Roger Goodell is probably sitting there thinking, oh, what, what next? Now, keep in mind, there's no love loss between right, Kraft yeah, and Goodell right. because of Deflategate and all mm-hmm, that type yep. of stuff. But, I mean, here you have one of the most prominent owners. and Just won a Super Bowl. Oh, right. <laughs> well, right, and they, they're in the Super Bowl every year. And he, he, this is another one where I, I always think that, you know, you're a general manager of a football team, and that phone rings at 2.30 in the morning, and you're probably going, oh, this isn't going to be good. You know, who, who's who been arrested? What, what's Wagner? rule of life number four you know out, <laughs> nothing good happens outside a strip club at you know two o'clock in the morning and maybe we could change that that nothing good happens you know during a 15 minute massage you know, in jupiter florida i'm it just but it is it is whatever they do with him it's kind of a pathetic ending to you know a, a legacy there so uh, Roger Goodell is probably going, oh, my, what? Who? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. got caught doing what? You know, so I don't know. It'll be an, I'm sure it'll make for interesting conversations at the owners meetings. You Just know, wait until the other names come out. We keep hearing there are other names involved once they go through all of the Well, charges. that's, yeah, interestingly, the ESPN guy, Adam Schefter, he, mm-hmm. he said that, and now he's backed off on that. Oh, they, he they, is now? They haven't made any other reference. There's a big story about that. Apparently, he put that out there, and, like, nobody else has jumped on it, and ESPN is kind of backing off ah, on that okay. as well. So, it, you know, so who knows? In any event, Robert Kraft in the news, this is, this is just... You know, for people who say there is no such thing as bad publicity, that those are people that have never had bad publicity. <laughs> Trust me, Robert Kraft does not want his name in the news associated with, you know, going to this massage parlor. All right, let us get started. We have an early out time again today, 2 o'clock this afternoon, matinee baseball. It is good to have the Brewers back on the radio. If you want to get a head start on some of the things we're going to be talking about on the program, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 and We've been, I've been trying to be better. That's my New Year's resolution, post stuff every day, and I've actually done a pretty good job of doing this. All right, let us get started. I want your reaction to this. Tomorrow, there is a very big case that is going to be argued in front of the United States Supreme Court. I, I think it's a big case because it's going to go a long way to perhaps defining that this, this thing that we talk about, about separation of church and state. Here, here is the story. In 1925, yes, 1925, the American Legion in a small town in Maryland, Prince George's County, which is right outside of Washington, D.C., all right? The American Legion, at the request of a number of different civic organizations, raised money and they erected a a cross. It's a war memorial, but it is in the shape of a cross. It's 40 feet tall. It's a 40-foot-tall cross. At the base of it, there is a bronze plaque that contains 49 names. These are the names of people from Prince George's County, Maryland, who lost their lives in World War One. 
So, and, and it was the American Legion raised the money for this. Originally, I think the property was owned by the American Legion, but they, they raised <clears throat> they raised the money. They built this. They erected this cross, and it, it's been there since 1925. In 1960, the state of Maryland took over the maintenance of the cross and the land it sits on because apparently this cross is right by a very busy intersection the intersection of a state highway and a u.s highway and so there's traffic that goes all around it so in an effort to manage the traffic better the state of maryland took over the the ownership of the land where the cross sits and they have been responsible for the maintenance of this cross since the early 1960s. All right, so everything goes along fine, no problem, no problem, no problem. A couple years ago, this one guy who lives in the area, one guy, his name is Stephen Lowe, says, I was looking at that cross, and I realized that this now sits on, on public property. And how can you have, how can you have a cross on public property. This violates separation of church and state, and I, for one, think it is insulting because this implies that if you, we don't even know what the religious affiliation was of many of the people who are named on this plaque at the base of the cross, but I think this is uh, offensive because it suggests and implies that the only way you can be patriotic, the only way that your war service can be recognized is by a, with a symbol of, of Christianity. All right, to which the response is, well, look, yes, this is a cross. And yes, in the Christian faith, the cross has a particular significance. But, but the cross can mean more than that. The cross isn't inherently and uniquely and only a religious symbol. People say, hey, look, we, we call this the peace cross. And yes, some people are going to look at that and they're going to see religion in this. But other people are just going to see this a, as a monument. And by the way, you know, these there's crosses all over this country. Walk through Arlington National Cemetery. You're going to see a ton of crosses. This is a common sort of thing. And again, some people might might see it with the religious overtones, but for other people, it's, it's going to be viewed in a secular sort of fashion. So the guy sues. He gets he hooks up with this like American Humanist Association. They sue. A federal judge in Maryland says, no, no, they, there's, there's no problem here. So they lose. They appeal. They find a divided Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that by a vote of eight to six says, yes, This is in violation of the Constitution, and we don't care that it's been here almost a 100 years. This is a cross on public land, and it needs to come down. Tomorrow, the United States Supreme Court is going to hear this argument, and the question becomes, is every time you see a cross on public land, is that inherently and exclusively religious? And do we have to remove all crosses from public land? Or could you have a memorial, in this case a war memorial, that has a cross and it's not exclusively for a religious purpose? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How should the court decide? All right, this, is it possible to have a war memorial in the shape of a cross on public lands? Is it possible for a cross to have something other than a purely religious meaning. 414-799-1620. Should the cross stand or should it have to come down? One of the judges on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said, well, if you want to take care of the problem, just cut off the, the cross 
crossbars. <laughs> just here, 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 let's just cut off the crossbar so it's not a cross anymore. It'll just be like an obelisk. Huh. 414-799-1620. Does the cross need to go? My answer, I hope not. We discuss in just a minute. 414-799-1620. It's 1220. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. It's 1222, 414-799-1620. Let's start with John and McGuanago. John, good afternoon. Yes. Um, my uh, comment on that is that uh, that cross is a pagan symbol. That cross was used universally by the Roman Empire, and uh, the Christians basically uh, adopted a pagan cross. Mm-hmm. So you don't see a religious underpinning to it at all. Uh, it it came from a pagan culture, no. right? So in other words, you okay? Well, thank, well, thank, again, again, well, I, I I understand I understand what you're saying. At the same time, th- there's no question that regardless of what its origin is, the cross for Christians has a particular and a unique meaning. There's no question about that, and I don't think anybody could argue it. The question, though, is, is is that exclusive? I mean, can a cross have other meanings as well? In other words, can it be subject to interpretation, or is it exclusively a Christian symbol? And to me, that's the argument. It's not exclusively a a Christian symbol. I think a cross can also be viewed as just a simple sign of remembrance, and I think somebody who is not Christian could look at a cross and say, okay, this this is remembrance, this is respect, without seeing the religious overtones that are on it. It is, I mean, you know, the Supreme Court has already said in certain contexts, you can have the Ten Commandments up there because of their historical significance. If you can have the Ten Commandments, it seems to me that a cross is much more ambiguous. 414-799-1620. And I guess the other larger point is, who who objects to this? I mean, how how pathetic and narrow does your life have to be if this this is what you look at? And by the way, a lot of the surviving family members of of the people who are honored there, they don't want this gone. Yeah, and and again, who knows what their religious are, religion is? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to Alex in Delafield. Hi, Alex. Hey, how's it going? Real well, thank you. Okay, does the cross need to go? Uh no. It doesn't. It's it's. Uh, I think it's a it's a waste of time and resources. Uh, it, it, like you said, it is pathetic and narrow minded to to look at it in that scope, uh, and just see it as a religious symbol. It's a memorialized. Uh, it, it's a symbol of memorializing those people who lost their lives. Yes. Beyond the religious factor, so. Yeah, I, no, right, no, I'm with you. I mean, th- see, that, thanks, see, that's, that to me is the essence of, of what this is. Could it have a religious connotation? Well, well, yeah, it, it could, but it doesn't have to exclusively have a religious connotation. And I think that's the way that you need to view these things sort of moving forward. You know, the, the, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, the majority opinion says, well, this, this entangles the government in an endorsement of religion. Huh? I mean, how how is this an endorsement of religion? Let's talk to John in Milwaukee. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. I totally disagree with these people with this cross thing. I think they're totally ridiculous. But my other point is with these people, 
why don't they complain about a VA cemetery? Mm-hmm. Every grave marker has a cross on it. Well, that's see, that's that's why this is so interesting to me, John. Because if the Supreme Court says, "All right, that this this cross has to come down because it doesn't belong on government property," that is the logical extension. What you just said—that every cross that sits on a VA graveyard has to come down as well, because it in and, and let's start with Arlington National, and then let's let's go off to the races. That's that's the bigger picture of what could happen if the court, you know, goes the wrong way on this one tomorrow. Right on. No, thank. No, thanks for that. Right, that's it. I mean, and again, that that's the that's the scary type of thing. Think of all the different things on public land, including graveyards, you know, as well. All right, if now uh, having a cross there represents a government endorsement of religion. What is that going to mean? Are we going to have to go out to every VA graveyard, just like John says, and go through there and now remove all those different crosses, regardless of what the religious affiliation is of the, the person who's who's buried there? Again, I, I understand that, I, and I'm not arguing that a cross has no religious significance at all to some people. I am arguing that a cross means different things to different people, and that if anybody views a cross as an exclusive is something that is exclusively an endorsement of religion. You are looking to create an issue. I hope the Supreme Court shuts this one down big time. My prediction is with the current makeup of the court, and by the way, this is why elections matter, my belief is my belief is the cross is going to be able to stay. That's just how I think it's going to come down. The argument is at 9 o'clock our time tomorrow morning. 1228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Twelve thirty-six. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This week's home improvement spring showcase is brought to you by Hometown Windows and Doors. That's hometown with an E for your every window and door need. All right, here, here, here is the story. Madison, the Madison School District, has been really in an uproar over the course of the last uh, several months. There have been various instances between where you've had interactions between either police officers in the school or teachers and in general, minority children. And there's some people in Madison who've decided, well, I'm like looking at some of the statements. They just believe that um, black children act out in school because they are dehumanized every day. Um, we demand that you, I'm looking at something that happened at the school board meeting yesterday. We demand that you dismantle school policing systems. We demand that you divest from law enforcement and school militarization, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the sentiment that's going on. Well, here's the latest thing that, that caused the uproar. Last week, I believe it was last Wednesday, it happens at this middle school, Whitehorse Middle School, which is on the east side of Madison. There, there's an 11-year-old girl who happens to be African-American. She and her friend are in class, and apparently they are acting up in class. They are spraying perfume on each other during the class. The teacher tells them to stop. And the kids refuse to stop, at which point in time the the teacher calls in a staff person. Now, it turns out the staff person is is a longtime Madison Metropolitan School District educator. The guy is 52 years old, and he's apparently, you know, been on staff for for decades, and he's the dean of students. 
and he's acting as the principal on that day. So anyhow, he gets this call from you know somebody, I don't know if it's a teacher or whether they've got like teacher's assistants or whatever, that, hey, you need to come down here because we've got a problem with these these two kids. So the guy comes down, goes into the, the room, and he says, okay, girls, you're, you're going to have to leave the room. You're, you know, you're, you're disrupting the class. Teacher says you have to go. You've got to go. And the 11-year-old apparently says, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go. I'm not going anywhere. Now, I, I just digress for a minute because it's been a long time since I was 11 years old. But I am trying to imagine if I was acting out in a classroom to the point that they had to call the principal or the dean of students or whatever to come into the classroom and who would say, Jeff, you got to go. you got to leave this classroom that I would refuse. But that's apparently what happened. So the kids are acting out in the classroom. They refuse to leave and didn't step out. At point, again, the story that I'm looking at, this is the story that the mother's telling. At that point in time, the 11-year-old, not only does she not leave, she, like, goes the other way. She goes towards the window, and she's not following direction, at which point in time the dean of students, acting as the principal, apparently says to the teacher, look, I'm sorry, take the class somewhere else. Take the class somewhere else. At that point in time, the 11-year-old, apparently decides and says, no, no, that that's fine. The class can stay. I guess I'll go. <laughs> I Okay, I guess I'll go. And so then this is where it gets a little bit murkier. As the girl is heading out, and I don't know how promptly or quickly she is heading out, the allegations are the, the school administrator pushed her, um, put his hands on her back and kind of pushed her to get her to move along. And she, and this is the 11-year-old, turned around and said, don't put your hands on me. And then he pushed her again, and then the mother says that he started punching her. Well, they've got a video of this. The video doesn't show what happened in the classroom. It does show what happened in the hallway. The hallway doesn't show actual punching, but there, there is, they are grappling, and they end up going down onto the ground. And the man does have a hold of her hair as they're going down on the ground. Okay, so that that's, that is essentially th- this incident. Well, you know, last night at the school board, based on this incident, you had 200 people that descended on the school board, and they were yelling and screaming, and they were demanding that this principal slash dean of students be fired. He, he's on leave right now. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want to be clear here. I don't think there is ever a justification, absent you being attacked and and maybe self-defense, I don't think that there is a justification for a a teacher putting their hands on students, again, outside of of, of self-defense sort of situation. So if if he did that, you know, if if he did that, I, I understand that there's going to be issues. But having said that, do you have to let... In this case, do you have to let the kids run the show? Um, and I, I guess I I was listening, I was reading the story, and I was kind of following up on this, and I'm thinking, all right, here we have empowered apparently these 11 year olds to be able to behave any way they want, 
and decide that they get to call the rules. And if, if you, if you get in their face, if you try to urge them out of the room when they finally decide to go, it, it's you are the ones that are, well, you know, don't disrespect me. You're pushing me, et cetera, et cetera. Don't you dare touch me. I guess at some point in time, and again, I'm not going to defend until the full investigation is complete, you know, what, why the teacher, why the principal ended up putting hands on the kid. But at the same time, all right, is this child, is this 11-year-old completely the victim? And the mom is absolutely outraged. But do you have to ask perhaps this larger question of, you know, is there blame to go around here? And what does it say to the 11-year-old who says, hey, I can do whatever it is that I want. I don't have to listen to the teacher. I don't have to leave if I'm told. At some point in time, all right, is it fair to say that th- this whole thing was brought about by by the kid? And maybe that's where the blame lies. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And maybe, again, this is just a sign of the times. I cannot imagine a situation when I was in middle school where you act out in a classroom to the point that, you know, it's not just the teacher saying, hey, knock this off. It's a point of you refuse to knock it off. You continue to do this stuff. You continue to disrupt this class. They have to call a principal in, in this case, or dean of students or whatever. And even when that authority figure comes, you ignore that person's instructions. Has the pendulum swung too far? And don't get me wrong. I am not endorsing any way at all, you know, getting physical with with kids. I mean, I I think, again, outside a self-defense situation, I don't think that's appropriate. But at the same time, I mean, it's hard for me to see this 11-year-old as a victim and maybe, you know, maybe just maybe the mom needs to look inside and say, well, OK, do, do you share some blame for having a kid that decides that they don't think that they have to listen to the instructions that they're getting from their teacher and that they can just flat out be disruptive? 414-799-1620. We discuss in a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Tom in Sheboygan. Hi, Tom. Hey. Um, so um, I disagree with the idea that children should not be spanked. I'm going to start off with that. Um, I have four children. All of my children were spanked at one time or another. If I got a call from the school and they told me that one of my children had to be physically removed from the classroom, that child, when they get home or when I get home with them, we're going to have an issue. There should be no reason that a child should be that disruptive and disrupting the whole classroom, disrupting all the other students, disrupting the teacher, not respecting the teacher. We can't mm-hmm. let these kids keep doing this. It can't keep on. That's, I mean, this is the root, the root problem is there's no discipline, not Wait. by the parents. I was spanked in school. The, you know, when I was a kid, they could still spank you in school. <laughs> I um thanks to I remember I, I I was in seventh grade I've, I've told this story before public school I was in seventh grade and, and we had a math teacher who used to throw erasers if you were if you were kind of doping off in the class and not paying and then these were the old like you know you had the old chalkboards you know the erasers and you were like not paying attention in class or whatever he'd throw an eraser at you and the eraser would hit you by the side of the head or whatever and it wouldn't hurt but chalk would go flying and everybody would like laugh and things like that can you imagine doing stuff like that now I never got an eraser thrown at me but you know what. <laughs> 
Um, I, I just I do remember that. And it did occur to me, gee, you don't want to necessarily be not paying attention here. Now, look, I, I have an idea as to how this whole thing happened. And maybe, you know, they don't have a videotape of what went on in the classroom. But but here's my idea, what I think happened. So you've got the kids that are acting up. They are refusing to listen to the point that the teacher has to call the principal to come in. Principal comes in. The kids still refuse to leave, at which point in time, he, they finally say, okay, well, I guess we'll we'll go with you. My guess is he puts his hand on the back of the kid to usher her out. That's what I think probably happens. Then, don't you touch me, and then it kind of all escalates from, from there. I guess I, at, at some point in time, though, I, I don't know how you handle this if you are a principal. Now, again, I don't know what the struggle was. And, you know, the mom says, well, he punched her. I'm not sure that that shows up on a videotape. My guess is he was kind of like pulling her across to get her to leave the room in, you know, his time, not in her time. And and it's entirely possible that the principal, you know, went too far. So this isn't meant as a defense of that. But none of this happens if the kid doesn't do what the kid did. 414-799-1620. Catherine in Wauwatosa. Hi, Catherine. Hi. What do you think? Um, I think the true victim here were the other kids in the class because they were denied an education by some other people that didn't know how to behave. Right. Well, that, yeah. I mean, what, what about the rights of all these other kids who are for, for now learning is shut down for however long this thing takes because you've got a couple kids that have decided, well, we don't have to listen. We can do what, whatever we want and we want to create the disruption. You know, what about the rights of the rest of the classroom? Right. And I, and I, and I think maybe in the future, um, you're going to have to start putting it on the parents. If your kids disruptive, won't leave. Start charging them by the minute. Mm-hmm. The kids disrupting for you know every five minutes or every every minute, five dollars. Mm-hmm. And all that principal had to do was start ta- saying, counting the counting the minutes out loud to that kid. This money's coming out of your family. Yeah, I, it's yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. That way you would have to touch them. Yeah, I guess, but at this, I mean, it, it, this must have been bad. If at one point in time, if, if the kid, ref, I get, I see, I just can't get past the thing, the kid refusing to leave the classroom. I just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine if, if the, my, my seventh or eighth grade principal came into the classroom and said, okay, Wagner, you gotta go, that I was gonna say, no, I'm not leaving. It's just something totally alien to me. And, and if I went home and had to explain that to Ann and Jack Wagner, they'd say, you did what? <laughs> he told you to leave and you did what? <laughs> no, thank, thank, right, thank, thanks for calling. And then you struggled with him? I, I mean, and again, I, I understand times are different. I, I, I get that, and I'm not endorsing, you know, brutality towards children or anything like that. But at the same time, there is kind of this balancing that has to go on where you have children that decide that they don't have to follow the rules and they're going to create these types of disruptions. At some point in time, you got to wonder, right, do you have to have different degrees of accountability and how do you handle that i mean how do you handle the situation where you have the disruptive child who decides i'm not i'm just not going to do this and and how dare you discipline me let's talk to vincent on the northwest side hi vincent good afternoon jeff welcome back thank you first of all the resource officer handled it very well up until the point where he put his hands on his child Mm -hmm. The fact is, he did. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. But the point is, once he began to put his hands on the child, he bears he bears large responsibility for what happened in this hallway. 
And so, and, and, and because the girl actually was moving out the room. Maybe she was moving out slowly. Maybe she was taking her time. But she was moving. Mm-hmm. And so the fact is, once he once he determined where I'm going to put my hand, he bears responsibility on what happened in that, in that classroom. Mm-hmm. Now, now, nobody knows what this mother said to her daughter when she got home. Maybe she did did discipline her for her for her participation in what happened in that classroom. But the point is, the teacher crossed the line, and I mean, the, the, the principal crossed the so line. So, what do you do? What do you do? Let let's let's say you're in that scenario. You've got the the child that is disobedient, disruptive, and says that they don't want to go. How how should he have handled it? I think he handled it the, the correct way. He said, "Okay, well, let's move this class to another room." Okay. And then the girl said, "No, never mind. I'll move to. I'll, I'll leave then." So, he, like I said, after that point, he handled it the right way. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He did it intelligently. And but once he began to put his hands on his child, mm-hmm. then he made he crossed the line and made it and, and, and made a decision to cross the line. And, and that's where he gets into trouble. Mm-hmm. Do so, you think it's ever appropriate? And and let, let let let's not talk about punching or anything like that. But okay, so let's say the kid decides that, all right, I'm going to go, but I'm going to go in my own time. So I'm going to go really, really slowly. Do you think it's inappropriate for him to, let, let's say, you know, push her push her from the back or, or grab her arm and try to escort her out? No, he should not put his hands on his child because once you began to do that, you're in a whole different realm of legality as far as the school is concerned. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so if something happens to this child, you, know, you, you, you never know. So the fact is... Is that once she begins to move, let her move. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it certainly, certainly, it, it, it harms the other students in the classroom. It harms the other and, I, and I remember when I was a kid, we in junior high school, we had a gym teacher walk around with a cat of nine tails, and he was watching <laughs> with the darn thing. Oh yeah. But that was, but that was then. But the fact is, is that now, now the school is in a whole different liability, have liability issues when it comes to putting their hands on children. Well, there's no question about it. The, the times they are definitely. A changing, and I guess people can argue about whether that's good or bad. I, 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 I my guess is, I, I, the the mom wants the the principal, the the, the school resource officer, the principal, uh, dean of students is what I think his technical title is. I think the mom, mom wanted him to be criminally charged, or somebody up there. There was some push, at least, for criminal charges. Madison police are looking at it. Like I say, the videotape has not been made public, although it it just. It's only in the hallway, and it only shows a struggle. I, I don't take a position as to what should happen to the principal in this case, although this is clearly something that quickly got out of control. I bring this up only to the point of, you know, who wants one of these jobs? Because this is the type of stuff that apparently goes on on a day-to-day basis in public schools across this region, across this state, and across the, this country, where you, you've got kids that decide that they are entitled, that they can be as disruptive as they want, and if you try to, you know, implement discipline, you know, if they refuse to be reasoned with, or at least they refuse to be reasoned with on your timetable as opposed to theirs, these are the types of things that can happen. And again, I'm not defending the principle. The investigation will play out as to whether, you know, he or she overreacted. But, you know, what what kid at the age of 11 decides that, you know, they can ignore authority figures? And maybe that's the larger issue that's out there. It's 1255. 109, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Matinee Brewers Exhibition Baseball coming up in less than an hour. 
we'll have that periodically over the course of the next couple weeks. And then um, once once daylight savings time kicks in, the baseball start times for spring training baseball goes back to 3 o'clock, so full shows. But for the next week or two, we will occasionally have the third hour of the program preempted. All right. Uh, elections have consequences. And we in Wisconsin are going to see a lot of those consequences over the course of the next several months and actually the next couple years as Governor Tony Evers takes over from former Governor Scott Walker. And Evers is going to be doing all sorts of things to try to reverse different policies that the Walker administration implemented as he tries to implement his particular vision of what Wisconsin should be. In my opinion, thankfully, he's going to be limited in that because you still have overwhelming control by Republicans of the state Senate and the state assembly. Nevertheless, there are things that Evers can do unilaterally, and he did one of them yesterday. He announced that he was going to pull all Wisconsin National Guardsmen who have been serving on the border. And if you will remember, over the last several months, there have been very violent, various volunteer Wisconsin National Guard soldiers and airmen who have gone down to assist federal authorities with things on the border. There's a total of 112 Wisconsin National Guard soldiers and airmen who have been along the border or in Arizona. Tony Evers, and this is why elections have consequences, you got to understand, Evers is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. The argument that the Democrats are making is that there's no border emergency. There's no reason why we have to be concerned about what's going on there. And so predictably, and this was predictable, Tony Evers announced yesterday that he was bringing back all the National Guardsmen. He would be returning them. His comment was, well, I just don't think that there's an emergency that's there, and um, I think that they should, I can't justify having them stay away from home. Right? I don't want to talk about that aspect of the decision. Because, again, you can agree with him, you can disagree with him, but that's where elections have consequences. And the voters of Wisconsin, led largely by a huge turnout in the city of Milwaukee and in Dane County, have decided that they want Tony Evers to be the governor. So that this is what you get. Here's the interesting aspect of the story, at least the most interesting aspect of the story to me. There is a Republican congressman. His name is Adam Kinzinger. And he is a member of the Wisconsin National Guard. He is a commissioned officer, and he's a pilot based out of Madison. And he's he's been part of this deployment. All right. So yesterday, in advance of this decision to pull the troops, and apparently people knew it was coming, Congressman Kinzinger decides to take to to Twitter to comment on this decision and to try to convince the governor to reconsider. For example, I mean, he sends out a a number of tweets, but I'm looking at, at some of them. He says that he was sent to the border as a member of the Wisconsin National Guard. His crew caught a man crossing the border with 70 pounds of methamphetamine. He said, if we hadn't been there to do that, you know, what could the damage potentially have been to people in Milwaukee if this guy had gotten, you know, into the country and some of that stuff had ended up in um in, you know, in Milwaukee. So, you know, he, he talks about that. You know, he goes on to say that, you know, he, that his crew had also been involved in, um, first of all, saving a woman they found roaming in the desert alone and capturing coyotes who he said might prey on migrants. So he sends a, a series of those tweets out. He also says in another tweet, did, and this is directed at the governor, he says, did you go to visit the National Guardsmen on the border to see for yourself 
or did you make your decision based solely on politics? He then goes on to send a tweet. Again, this is a congressman from Illinois. Goes on to send a tweet. Governor Evers, your guardsmen saved many lives and protected our country on this mission. Did you go visit them at the border to see for yourself, or did you make your decision based solely on politics? So, you know, you, you get the you get the sense of what these tweets were. Well, anyhow, Tony Evers has decided, eh, he doesn't care about that. No, he didn't talk to the guardsmen. He's going to pull them back, and you can agree with that decision or not. Here's the interesting aspect. In the face of the criticism of this decision by this Illinois congressman, well, here's the way the AP is reporting it. The Wisconsin National Guard and Governor Tony Evers' office are looking into whether the congressman who belongs to the National Guard should face discipline for criticizing Evers' decision to withdraw troops from the southern border. Um, Evers is the commander-in-chief of the Wisconsin National Guard. Here's what the the law says, and I have a hand in my hands here. State law requires punishment be leveled against any commissioned officer who uses contemptuous words against the president, the vice president, members of Congress, the secretary of defense, the secretary of a military department, the secretary of homeland security, or the governor or legislature of the state of Wisconsin. All right, let us tee this up. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You have a congressman who's a member of the Illinois Na- uh, Wisconsin National Guard who's clearly unhappy with the decision to pull troops um, back to Wisconsin from their mission on the border. He sends out a series of tweets talking about the various accomplishments that have been made and suggests that, okay, you know, this decision might have been made well, um, based solely on politics, should he be disciplined for saying those things publicly? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And here, of course, you have the conflict between his role maybe as a National Guardsman and his role as a policymaker in Congress. Should Evers push to discipline him for criticizing Evers? Should the National Guard push to discipline this man for criticizing to the extent this is criticism for criticizing um, Evers. Was this contemptuous? How would you handle it? 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this in just a minute. It's 116. One nineteen, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, an Illinois congressman who is also a pilot in the Wisconsin National Guard, who's assigned to the border, publicly questions the decision by Tony Evers yesterday to pull all Wisconsin National Guard's people from the border, saying, "Well, I just don't think there's a national emergency." The congressman sent out a series of tweets disagreeing. Saying, hey, here's one of the things we did: we captured this guy that was bringing seventy pounds of methamphetamine in. We found you know, somebody who was wandering along in the desert. We caught these people. People who were preying on folks. Yeah, we, we, we think that this was valid. Then he says, hey, Governor, did you actually talk to anybody that was down there, or is this just purely politics? And now the man is being investigated for criticizing the commanding officer. This would be Tony Evers. All right, should he be prosecuted? 414-799-1620. Lewis on the south side. Lewis, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. I, hi. I don't think he said anything that was all that contemptuous. And... Uh he is a congressman, too. I understand there's a little bit of conflict there. Um, but 
uh, at best, as commanding officer should say, um, maybe you want to watch it a little bit on, on uh, you know, direct uh, right. information about, about a certain subject that, you know, involves the guard. But um, it, it'd be silly to even uh, prosecute this. It, this needs to just move on. Well, I see things. I mean, I agree. I don't. I mean, I was looking at the language of the statute, and it says contemptuous. And I don't. I mean, clearly he disagrees with the decision. But does that make it contemptuous? Yes, he does say, hey, did you talk to anybody who was actively involved, any of these guard members who are actually down there? Or is this decision purely politics? So, I mean, he, he does say that. But I don't know that that's contemptuous per se. And and you, you do wonder, do you have – and I look, I understand the military is different. I, I get the idea that if you're in the military, you're supposed to just, like, shut up and follow orders. But there is – there is, to me, a difference, especially when you're talking about someone. Is he speaking in his role as a National Guardsman? Is he speaking in his role as a congressman? How do you, you know, reconcile the two? Bottom line is, and again, I, I don't care whether you agree with Tony Evers' decision or not, but, but let's be honest here. This is a political decision. All right. This is this is what this is all about. Now, you can maybe argue that Scott Walker's decision to send the troops to the border was political as well. But this is a political decision. Evers didn't talk to anybody that was down there. Evers had no clue as to what the Wisconsin National Guard was accomplishing. You know, Evers, this is the national democratic strategy, which is, hey, there's no border emergency. So you're going to have other Democrat governors who are going to be either not sending their troops or pulling their troops. This is just all part of the overall political strategy. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it pure politics of of the situation. And and yes, Evers is playing politics. Again, you can argue that Walker played politics when he sent people down there, but I think it would be the height of foolishness to try to pursue this and try to say, okay, we're going to try to discipline this congressman for at least raising questions about the governor's decision and at least suggesting what we all should know, that this was a politically based decision, not fact-based but rather, all right, this is politics. I'm a Democrat. This is the Democrat strategy. How is it going to look if I allow Wisconsin National Guard troops to be there when the Nancy Pelosi's of the world are arguing, hey, there's no national emergency? So, I mean, I, I get it. I understand why Evers did it. You might even agree with him doing it. That's fine. This congressman, I think this is one where we kind of go back to if the question is, you know, do, do you prosecute him for anything at least based on what's going on so far, I think you adopt the strategy that Nancy Reagan took to, to drugs in the 80s. Just say no. It's 123. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 125. Glad to have you with us. You're going to be noticing over the course of the next week or two, we're, we're doing all sorts of these different things with regard to our voice imaging and our getbacks, and we've got a new show open that's going to be coming out by the end of the week. I'm very excited about it. My producer, Gru, who is more than just another pretty face, has been working very, very hard on that. We're rolling those things out. Very, very excited about it. Let me tell you about an interesting story that is, well, it's causing 
Well, the, the, the pucker factor is up in some members of the mainstream media. Remember that story about a month or so ago involving the, the kids from Covington Catholic High School? Those were the kids that were at the – they were in Washington, and you had the confrontation with the guy from the Native American group who was beating the drum. And, and the stories that were reported, starting in the Washington Post and then elsewhere, about how the kids were making racist chants and things like that. Remember that, that whole story? And it turned out to be, by and large, BS. I mean, by and large, the mainstream media got the story completely and totally wrong. It was actually the kids that were being provoked by this hate group that was screaming things at them, and it, it just kind of escalated from there. So the story was pretty much completely wrong, but that didn't stop what ended up happening. You had all these commentators who were saying all sorts of horrible things about the kids in general, and in particular, the young man named Nick Sandman, who was... The guy, the the young man for whom the, the Native American activist beating the drum walked up and got into his face. Well, again, the narrative that was put forth in the media was almost completely and totally wrong. Well, Sandman's family, on his behalf, have now filed this lawsuit, $250 million, against the Washington Post. And, you know, at first, some people might have just kind of brushed it off. but But now it's... A lot of people are starting to look at, including myself, and saying, you know, this might be the type of case where maybe you've seen an example where the mainstream media has gone too far. The, the big thing when it comes – the media has a right to get stuff wrong as a general rule. But the standard is, you know, what what happened? How did you get it wrong? And the key test is whether really you're a public figure or or not. If you are a public figure – then in order to collect on a defamation lawsuit, you have to show actual malice, which is essentially that they knew they knew it was wrong and they went after it anyways. And, and that's a standard which is almost impossible to meet. But that's for public figures. If, on the other hand, you are a private figure, it's a different standard. The media isn't protected by this having to prove actual malice. If you're a private figure, then all you have to show is that in in order to recover, that the media was negligent in their reporting, that they didn't interview everybody they were supposed to do, that they did a lousy job. This particular young man may very well be that private figure. I mean, most people that get involved in the news are are public figures or they're public figures for the purpose of what the story is. In this case, you had this 15- or 16-year-old kid who wasn't looking to be in the news, wasn't looking to be singled out. He was the one that all of a sudden hits his picture that's in the newspaper. You know, there's all these false reports about what he supposedly did, etc. I think you look at this and you clearly see a kid who probably is the private figure. And the important thing is, if you're the private figure, it's much easier to recover. Now, it doesn't mean that you're automatically going to recover, and it doesn't mean you're going to get $250 million. But this is going to be an interesting one because one of the problems is that I I think that you've seen a, a news media in general, which has been able to kind of 
run amok in certain cases without having to have any degree of accountability. And I understand. I mean, obviously, you want people to feel free to criticize authority figures. You want people to feel free to give opinions on issues. That's what I do on this program. But when you're a news reporter, when you're a news outlet like the Washington Post, you have an obligation, and you're not presenting stuff as opinion. You're presenting stuff as fact. You have an obligation to get the facts right. And I think... It's going to be pretty clear that in covering this case, the initial reports, that they didn't get the facts right. And if they've damaged this young man's reputation, and they certainly have, and he turns out to be a private figure, don't be surprised if not today, not tomorrow, this could be litigation that involves is involved for years, but don't be surprised if this is something that might make the media rethink the way it covers some stories. And if that puts a greater pressure on trying to get stuff right, well, that's pretty good. It's 134, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. There are a number of public schools in this area and in the state that are absolutely outstanding. I know good school districts are motivators. For example, I never had children, but I, I never never bothered me. The school district that I used to, I used to live in Whitefish Bay, and the, the school district was outstanding. And it never, I never objected to paying property taxes to support the school because I, I knew that that was an attraction. When I'd get ready to sell the house, people would would it would help kept the value of the house up because even though I wasn't a direct beneficiary because I didn't have kids that were going to the school system, I I knew that, you know, you find somebody that has kids that, Hey, it's attractive. I want to live in this particular school district. So I, I always felt that way. There are other school districts that aren't very good or schools in school districts that aren't very good. I, I don't, throw out this large indictment of, for example, the Milwaukee Public Schools, and I don't say that all the schools are, are horrible, because they're not. There are some very, very successful, by any objective measure, schools in, in the city of Milwaukee under MPS. There, there are several of them, but let's be honest. There's lots of schools that are, by any objective measure, they are failing, and if at all possible, you don't want your kids to go there. That that's just the reality. And I mean, we can argue about why that is, whether it's the classroom sizes or whether it's the teachers or whether it's the kids or whether it's the parents that don't want to be involved and, and all those. You can make those arguments. But the truth is, there are a number of, for example, and I'm picking this at MPS, but you can probably say this about other school districts as well. You just don't want your kids going there. You, you don't want your kids going there. Well, all right. Let's say you're in a certain situation. Let's say, okay, you've got young children that are going to be going to schools. You don't want them as part of MPS, and you've got the wherewithal to say, all right, I, I want to move. I want to move out to the suburbs because I think if I can get my kids into the Glendale River Hill School District, they're going to have a lot better chance at getting a good education than if they get stuck at one of these underperforming MPS schools. So. All right, you, you have the wherewithal, you, you end up moving. You, you buy a house in that area. That's fine for people that have the ability to do that. But what about the people who don't have the ability to move, who care about their kids' education, who, who do, but don't have the ability to, to move out of the area? Okay, 
Well, then you might say, well, all right, if you don't want to send your kid to the crummy MPS school, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying all the MPS schools are crummy, but you don't want to send your kid to a crummy MPS school because maybe that's where he or she would have to go. You can say, well, the option is, all right, send them to a private school, send them to a parochial school, then you don't have the problem. Well, you say, okay, well, that's, that's great, but I don't have the dough. I mean, I, I can't move out of the district, and I don't have the money to be able to afford the tuition at various private schools. So what's the option? Well, the option is something that started with Tommy Thompson, and it's been going on for a number of years, and that is these private voucher schools across the state. And if you meet certain criteria, you can get a voucher so instead of having to go to what, in the opinion of the parents, is the underperforming public school, you can go into the private school. And some private schools are good. Some aren't good. Look, and I'm not going to be this guy that argues that every private school that's out there is great because there's some that have problems. And I think it's fair to say that you should have some degree of accountability. But at the same time, I think, you know, we, we need accountability of some of the public schools as well. So in any event... Governor Tony Evers and elections have consequences. One of the things he is going to try to do in his budget that he unveils later this week, and I I don't think he's going to be able to get away with it, but this is his goal. He wants to limit the number of students who can attend private voucher schools, these taxpayer vouchered schools. Here's the numbers. About 28,000 students attend 129 private schools using taxpayer-funded vouchers in Milwaukee as of the current school year. So there's about 28,000 students who, again, take advantage of the voucher program. What Evers wants to do is he wants to freeze the program. In other words, no growth at all in the program, and private schools would only be allowed to take voucher kids if somebody graduates or drops out. So let's say for the sake of argument that the number gets frozen at 28,000. All right, your kid becomes eligible for school. All right, you're in the city of Milwaukee. You want to participate in the voucher program. Well, all right, unless, unless, if Evers' program would happen, unless somebody drops out or graduates, you, you wouldn't be able to send your kid to private school. Now, the Journal Sentinel had a piece about this. Mesmer Catholic School, right down the street from where I'm sitting, has about 1,500 students who are enrolled using vouchers. That, by the way, is about almost all of the school's enrollment. The Mesmer president says, hey, if you ever implemented an enrollment freeze, what's going to happen is it would essentially bust our, our budget because it, it prevents us effectively from growing. You know, if we if we can't grow the school, if we're told that this is the maximum number of voucher kids you can take, you're, you're essentially you're going to put incredible pressure on us. All right, our number four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Tony Ever says, "Well, this would save some money," and you know what? He he's probably right. Big picture, it would save some money. The way he saves money would be by limiting the ability of people to send their kids to these voucher schools and essentially forcing them to send their kids to public schools that they don't want to send them to. So 
Should we do this? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Of course, you know, you've got public teachers unions who view these voucher schools as threats. They're big supporters of Evers. They're big supporters of this. Matter of fact, they'd like to see voucher schools go away entirely. 414-799-1620. Should we limit enrollment? Essentially, cap it is, cap it is what it is now. And how would that affect young families who want to have the options that, okay, other families have had for the last 10 years. 414-799-1620, we discuss in just a moment. It's 142, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 144, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. By the way, if you want to get a head start on some of the things that we're going to be talking about on the program, follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. All right, Tony Evers, as part of his budget, wants to cap the number of kids who are in voucher schools uh, essentially, you, you talk to a lot of those voucher school principals, and they say this would really hurt us. The idea would be no new spots, no growth of these schools. You could only replace a student if they drop out or they graduate. Let's start with Greg in Milwaukee. Hi, Greg. Good afternoon. First-time caller. Uh, listen all the time. Super. What do you think? I totally agree with them. I went to public schools myself. My parents couldn't afford private school. You got your education out of public school, and I don't believe that all of it is attained. The the problem is with the public school system. It comes down to parent involvement with the students and teachers. Well, what if you have a situation where you have parents who are really involved? They, they really care about their kid's education, but the school that their kid would be going to, for, for whatever reason, it's got a bunch of other kids there whose parents don't care educational attainment is way down why shouldn't those parents be able to try to find a better a better life a better educational system for their kid you know what i agree with you to the extent that it's too bad that the parents are not in the situation like my parents were to afford me to go to a private school so i went to a public school so that's what you do you i I had a teacher in when i was in uh, ninth grade mr ring my science teacher I'll give you an example. He told me that you can learn in every school. It's all who you associate yourself with. Well, if you have bad students at that school, don't associate with those students and stay involved with the good kids. Well, I mean, I, look, I, th- I mean, look, I, I understand. I, I get that you've got this kind of, well, individuals can pull themselves up by their, their bootstraps. And I understand that people can get good educations at, at public schools. At the same time, There are public schools, like I said at the start, by any objective measure, they are failing. And I guess I don't understand why a governor who claims to care about the education of kids would want to limit the choices that children have to try to get their best education possible, if it were anything other than politics. Look, I understand Tony Evers, state superintendent of schools, was supported by the the teachers, the public school teachers and the public school teachers' unions. I, I get all that, and they don't like the idea of competition. I get that. I understand it. But you know what? At the end of the day, I thought this was all supposed to be about the kids. That is, giving the kids the best opportunity. And look, I just this whole idea of trapping kids in some failing public schools, I just don't understand how anybody can defend that. Now, to me, the answer is, I mean, obviously get the public schools to be better. 
And and I understand that that's that's some somewhat a simplistic sort of thing, but it's not just a question of throwing money at it. If you look at the pure people per pupil expenditures, for example, at MPS, that, that we spend a lot of money, but it, it's not it's just not working. I guess I just don't understand how somebody like Tony Evers can decide once you get away from you know the the teachers union supporters and stuff, how you can, for example, go and look in the face. Any of the parents of those 1,500 students who go to Mesmer and say, well, look, I, I want to limit your opportunities or I want to make sure the school doesn't grow anymore because, well, maybe it's a situation where I, I just even if your kid's gotten a great education, I, I don't want your your other kid to be able to get that same education. I want him to go into the public schools. Isn't the goal to try to allow parents, particularly parents who are involved and care about their kids, to give them the opportunity to get their children to the best school possible. And, and like I say, I mean, here's here's where this is a war on the poor. I mean, if you live in the city of Milwaukee, say, and you don't like the choices, and you've got money, you know, you've got enough money to send your kid to a private school, a parochial school, and instead of MPS, you're going to do that. You're going to do that. How can we look in the face those parents who do not have the means to be able to afford to make that decision and say, okay, we're going to deny your child that choice. And that is precisely what this would have the effect of doing. Now, like I say, I don't think it's going anywhere because the Republican legislature isn't going to buy into this. But the fact that Evers would even suggest it says a lot. And most of that lot is not good. 149, Jeff Wagner. 152, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Brewer Baseball coming up in just a moment or two. For my first two days back from vacation, I made a conscious effort to try to stay away from national topics, a lot of local stuff going on, a lot of other interesting things beyond Donald Trump, etc. We might change that up a little bit tomorrow because tomorrow is the day that Michael Cohen, who is, of course, President Trump's former lawyer, and former, what they describe him now as a fixer, he testifies before Congress, and it, it's going to be... Well, you can overuse the phrase circus. It is going to be an absolute and total circus, and we will probably be talking a little bit about that as well. Hey, the big question I've been getting over the last 24 hours is, hey, did you ever get your cars out? I told this story yesterday. Sunday afternoon, we come back from church. My wife was going to get ready to go to the gym. She comes into the house, and she says, the garage door won't go up. And I said, well, what do you mean the garage door won't go up? And she looked at me and said, what do, I, what do you mean? What do I mean the garage door won't go up? The garage door won't go up. So we found out that uh, it was springs. Who knew that springs on garage doors end up breaking? But, yes, bottom line is she took care of it. Got it. She didn't fix it herself, but we got it all fixed. So now, you know, we can get the cars out of the garage. We can go out. We can go about. If you're driving tonight, be careful. There is more snow on the way in the endless winter. But we're going to take your thoughts away from that for at least a couple hours because we have spring training baseball from Arizona. It's coming right up. Have a great Tuesday. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.